0: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
1: The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. In the vast forests of Siberia, Russia is conducting its biggest war games since 1981, when the Soviet Union was locked in a Cold War with the U.S., 300,000 soldiers, thousands of aircraft, and 36,000 tanks are involved in the exercise. And in a twist, China is taking part in the games, contributing over 3,000 soldiers and an assortment of combat vehicles and aircraft. Joining the crisis next door to make sense of all of this is Jeffrey Mankoff, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Russia and Eurasia Program. He's also the author of Russian Foreign Policy, The Return of Great Power Politics. Jeffrey, thanks for joining us here today. Sure. Thanks for having me. Russia is fairly nebulous about the war games, calling it anything (laughs) from routine drills to an exercise that will send a message to others about its power. Uh, The obvious target of that message would seem to be NATO. How seriously should the coalition take this?
0: Yeah, I would say more than NATO, it's really the United States because this is an exercise that's taking place uh, in the Russian Far East. Uh, You know, it's far away from NATO territory, but uh, it's being done in conjunction with China, which is uh, a departure for this kind of exercise at least. Um, And it's a message really to the United States, I think, about uh, the potential for uh, deeper Sino-Russian cooperation if uh, Russia feels that it's being pushed into a corner.
1: Do you feel that Vladimir Putin doesn't think that the U.S. truly respects Russia's military capabilities?
0: It's hard to know what anybody truly thinks, but uh, I will say that... Putin's public statements have indicated, uh, that, uh, he, he wants to at least, uh, communicate that message, uh, at his annual State of the Nation address, uh, earlier this year before the, the Russian presidential elections. Um, he gave a, a presentation where, uh, he had a, this multimedia demonstration of all of Russia's fancy new weapons systems. Um, and he very pointedly, uh, after showing off all of these systems, said uh, of the united states of the west they didn't listen to us before well listen to us now Uh, and there is kind of a subtext of the west not listening to not taking into consideration russian views that, that permeates a lot of uh russia's what you might call strategic communications
1: it would seem as though the west and the u.s in particular should take stronger note of what russia is capable of doing russia has really changed the dynamics in its relationship with the west over the past decade uh, whether backing separatists in a short war with Georgia in 2008 and then reclaiming the Crimea in 2014 while also backing separatists in the Ukraine, with that fight continuing to slog on and sending troops and aircraft to Syria in order to prop up Bashar al-Assad. Uh, have those engagements altered the calculus with which the U.S. and NATO considers the Russian threat?
0: I, I think so, yeah. Um, the general assumption governing relations with Russia since the end of the Cold War has been um, that uh, Russia and the U.S., Russia and NATO were no longer adversaries, um, that they were moving towards some kind of uh, uh, post-Cold War, post-historical world that would be based more on cooperation than than confrontation. from Russia's perspective I think the trouble with that vision was always that it was a Western vision uh, that the the way that that partnership was going to be constructed was on the basis of, of what the West wanted not what what Russia wanted um, and so you mentioned the, the conflict in Georgia I think that was really the first moment where uh, Russia took concrete steps uh, rather than just uh, declarations um to communicate the message that um it was tired of not being uh or not having its interests as it saw them taken into consideration, uh, and subsequent uh, activities, including the the conflicts in, in both Ukraine and Syria, uh, seem to reinforce that message, uh, which is that uh, Russia is a great power. It has the ability to uh, act independently. Uh, it has the ability to deploy and use military force, uh, regardless of what the United States or others think, um, and that it's to to act in defense of of what it perceives to be its national interests
1: NATO has been beefing up its presence in the Baltic states and Poland long believed to be potential trigger points to any conflict with Russia in particular the Baltic states of Estonia and Latvia which have heavy Russian minority populations a product of those countries former membership in the Soviet Union how much of a threat is Russia to those countries
0: I would You can think of threats as as involving both intentions and capabilities. Um, As far as the capabilities go, Russia has very significant capabilities to pose a threat to to the Baltic states. Um, uh, On the intention side, of course, one can never be 100% sure about an adversary's intentions, But given the Baltic state's membership in NATO, the presence of uh, allied forces in the territory of those countries, it would be a very significant risk and a very significant for Russia to undertake military activities um, in those countries. So I think the risk uh, is real, and it's something that military planners uh, in NATO and in the the governments of of Latvia and Estonia, among others, um, have to take seriously. But at the same time, I think it's a pretty low probability that event because NATO actually uh provides a security umbrella for these countries and I I think Russia understands that use of of military force against a NATO member would be uh would risk getting into a conflict not only with relatively small countries like Estonia and Latvia, but with the NATO alliance as a whole.
1: Defense analysts say the key to preventing war is credible deterrence. Do you think there is enough deterrence Mm For Russia in those NATO countries,
0: um, I would say yes. Uh, in the last couple of years, NATO's taken steps to preposition forces in those countries. It's not a a large number of forces. We're only talking uh, a little bit over a thousand troops in in each of Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia uh, and Poland. Um, But those are multinational forces. Uh, Those are Americans. They're British. They're Canadian. They're German. Um, And they're under the the auspices of NATO uh, which means that uh, in the event of a conflict they would be involved in it from the very beginning Uh, and in that sense they they serve as a kind of tripwire because if you have uh, American or or other allied soldiers coming under fire then uh, politically it's almost impossible for those countries not to react uh, very strongly Um, and I think Russia understands this.
1: Now much of this is based on a rather large-scale conventional attack but as we saw in the Ukraine and Crimea As well as in Georgia, Russia has used some alternative methods, whether it's the little green men or using social media. How much of that would factor into this? And could Russia see a possibility to use those kinds of asymmetrical means to achieve some sort of goal in uh, altering borders or having greater influence on those countries?
0: Uh, I think that's a, a much more um, uh, visible, uh, worrying um, possibility for those countries because uh, it's not. A, there's no clear red line uh, around the use of cyber information um, even sort of special operations activities that fall below the threshold of armed conflict Um, and because there's not a clear red line around those activities i think the ability to credibly communicate deterrence the way that you can with uh... conventional military actions is much more difficult uh, and we've already seen some of these kind of activities take place uh, vis-a-vis those those countries that you mentioned on the eastern flank of NATO. Um, perhaps the most well known is um, in two thousand and seven when uh, the Estonian government was planning to move uh, a monument to Soviet soldiers uh, who had um, been in the country during the Second World War. Um, and the Russian government um, you know basically you charged the Estonians with, with trying to equate uh, the Soviet presence and the, and the Nazi presence and, uh, with historical revisionism and disrespect of, of the sacrifice of, of Soviet soldiers, um, and they launched a large-scale cyber attack that um, took down a lot of uh, Estonian computers and, and, and servers and, and the like. Um, you've seen similar kinds of activities in the context of Russia's wars uh, in Georgia, Ukraine, um, and elsewhere. Um, And again, because if we're not talking about things that cause physical damage or uh, lead to people being killed, um, it's not clear um, that... uh, those activities would inevitably lead to a, a, an armed response or to a response of, of the level that would be capable of of deterring the, those actions in the first place. Um, so I think those are very real contingencies and, and things that um, both the governments in, in places like Tallinn and, and Warsaw and Riga and uh, Vilnius need to take seriously, but also in the context of, of the alliance, uh, you know, figuring out how do you build a a credible deterrence posture around uh activities that fall short of the threshold for for armed conflict.
1: Do you think that the US and, and those NATO members are making any progress in figuring out how to deal with those cybersecurity issues and, and to deal with a the, the lack of the red line that could cause these conflicts?
0: I think some progress has been made. Um it's it's slow because we're talking about tools um, that are relatively new uh, and where international norms haven't really coalesced uh, yet, um, but during the most recent NATO summits uh, this has been very much a, a topic of conversation. Uh, there's been a real emphasis on uh, resilience, uh, so figuring out how to harden systems to make them more resistant to uh, sabotage or to um, cyber penetration societal resilience, uh, teaching people to be more media literate, uh, to be less, uh, trustful of, of things, of, of disinfo- of things that may prove to be disinformation. Um, so on that side of things, uh, there has been some progress that's been made, but, um, at the same time, I think we still see, uh, these kind of activities, uh, being undertaken, including, should add in the United States, uh, and having an effect, um, and uh, having an effect in part because um, the responses that have been articulated so far have not uh, been entirely adequate.
1: You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Russia's massive military war games. And we're talking to Jeffrey Mankoff, deputy director and senior fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies Russia and Eurasia program. Jeffrey, since the fall of the Soviet Union, NATO has aggressively added new members from Russia's periphery, much to Moscow's consternation. Does Moscow truly fear potential NATO aggression on its borders, or is this more about maintaining neighborhood influence?
0: it's a little of both i would say um nato has been clear that uh it has no offensive intentions vis-a-vis russia uh and has taken steps like the the nato russia pact that was, or the nato russia um uh, i guess yeah it was uh, well, there was the, the NATO-Russia Founding Act, uh, I guess, which was signed in the, in the late 1990s, um, and NATO committed to not stationing what they called substantial combat forces um, in new uh, member states along Russia's borders, uh, and that was designed to provide reassurance to the Russians that you know, there wouldn't be a military capability uh, capable of, of launching um, offensive operations uh, against Russia. Uh, the Russian concern is still there and stems from uh, a couple of, of places. One uh, is the precedent. Uh, so even if NATO today says that it has no uh, intention of stationing substantial combat forces in these countries, uh, the Russian concern is that circumstances could change, uh, and certainly circumstances have changed uh, since the, the annexation of Crimea and the, and the conflict in Ukraine, um, and NATO could change its mind, and now that these countries are members, um, it would be easier uh, for a decision to be taken to deploy uh, not only the, the relatively small rotational uh, forces that are that are there now, but to deploy more um, uh, capable, uh, larger units as well um, and the second piece of it I think has to do uh, with the, the issue that you raised about maintaining influence um, because NATO uh, is a military alliance but it's, it's not just a military alliance it's a military alliance that's in principle at least based on a set of ideas uh, that Russia by and large doesn't share Um, And so countries that commit to being members of the NATO alliance, uh, uh, like the European Union, also commit to um, implementing uh, institutions and and policies uh, that coincide with with these values. Um, And in doing that, they uh, become less amenable to Russian pressure, Russian suasion. Russian efforts to influence uh, the way that they act, um, and you know you've you've seen this um, with a number of, of countries uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, and, and to a lesser degree in the former Soviet Union, where uh, NATO membership was was one step that was followed by uh, membership in the European Union, uh, and there's been a, a sort of gradual process of, of changing the what you might call the operating system of of their uh, governments so that there's less uh, corruption there's less uh, oligarchy there's more transparency uh, and it's harder for Russia to has had quite a bit of success uh, in waging.
1: The key for NATO has always been that if one country is attacked, the rest of the NATO members will come to its aid. Uh, do you think that that resolve is just as strong within NATO today as it was, say, during the Cold War? Um,
0: hopefully, we don't have to find out. Um, During the Cold War, there were always questions. Uh, There were always questions uh, whether the United States was going to risk uh, a nuclear attack on New York uh, in order to save Berlin, let's say. Um, And fortunately, we didn't have to answer that question. Um, But the general proposition that uh, the United States would be willing to do that was, was... Believed uh, to the extent that uh, at least after 1948 uh, the Soviet Union didn't really try to test it. Um, today, it's hard to say. Um, you have um, more in the United States right now than, than anywhere else. You have a, a political leadership that's openly questioning the value of NATO. Um, and You know, I I think there's still a pretty broad and and deep support for NATO within the the U.S. political establishment, but uh, it's perhaps more questionable now than it's been uh, in some time, Uh, and beyond that, there's a generational issue, which is that uh, people who don't remember the Cold War, people who don't recall why the united states has this large uh... military presence in europe um, are less uh... invested in in the maintenance of of that military presence or the maintenance of the the transatlantic relationship Um and uh... you know not because they're pro Russian necessarily, but because I think they see, uh, they, they don't see the the value necessarily. They don't understand what it is that, uh, those American, uh, troops and the American money that, that pays to keep them there are, are, uh, are accomplishing. Um, and that's, uh, that's a challenge. I think it's, uh, something that the American political leadership generally has to do a better job of of, of making the case for why uh, that continued uh, commitment to the transatlantic relationship remains important.
1: Putin must love the antipathy shown right now by the current White House towards NATO. It's, it's got to be something that he wants to take advantage of.
0: Uh, yeah, no doubt. Um, Russian and before that Soviet strategy uh, always emphasized trying to uh, play on fissures uh, between the United States and, uh, and its European allies um, to stoke uh, uncertainty in Europe about the, the degree of the U.S. commitment and to undermine support for that commitment in the United States. Uh, and in that regard, there's more uh, historical memory about this issue in, in Russia than there probably is uh, in the United States. Um, now that for whatever variety of reasons uh, is taking uh, positions that I think are very um, at least on this particular issue are are very amenable to uh, Russian views.
1: Russia and China have never been that chummy having fought some border skirmishes in the past how important is China's participation in this exercise and how does that impact China's relationship with the US?
0: Uh I think China's participation is its significant, but I wouldn't overstate it. Um, yes, uh, the, the Sino-Russian relationship has been complicated. Uh, past uh, Russian exercises in the Far East have, for all intents and purposes, um, been designed to test a response to a Chinese attack uh, even if they've tried to sort of downplay that as the the base scenario. Um, Having Chinese troops participating this time of course uh, is a a signal to Beijing that Moscow is not uh, focusing on on fighting Chinese troops uh, the way that it may have been in in previous iterations of, of this exercise. Um, it's also a signal to the West, and particularly the United States, uh, that even though um, the Sino-Russian relationship may still be complicated, and even though China may be the, the senior partner in that relationship, uh, Russia is willing to go more down the path of a of a Sino-Russian on um, uh rather than alliance, but uh, to move in that direction. Uh, if the the U.S.-Russia relationship remains uh, as bad as it is or, or gets worse.
1: Jeffrey, your renowned book on Russia, The Return of Great Power Politics, is nearly a decade old. You maintained at the time <laughs> yes. that a return to the Cold War standoff between Russia and the West was unlikely. How much has your opinion changed since then? Um, well, <laughs> I, I think we're in something
0: that... Has at least uncomfortable echoes of the Cold War. Uh, it's not the same. It, it doesn't have the same global uh, impact, and I don't think the ideological dimension is as pronounced as it was during the Cold War. Um, but we're in—we're uh, definitely in a standoff, um, and I think it uh, grows out of the the difficulty that uh, collectively we've had figuring out where Russia fits in the in the security order that was constructed at the end of the Cold War. Um, we wanted Russia involved uh, in that order, but we didn't want to adapt the order uh, to Russia. We wanted Russia to adapt to the order, and uh, that was a, a proposition that uh, never had a lot of support in Russia, and uh, especially in the last decade or so, um, Putin has made clear that that's not a, a bargain that he's willing to accept.
1: Well, they say history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme, and it does seem like there is a a bit of rhyming going on there. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you very much for joining us today on The Crisis Next Door. We've been joined by Jeffrey Mankoff, Deputy Director and Senior Fellow with the Center for Strategic and International Studies Russia and Eurasia Program. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's TCNDpodcast at kcbsradio.com.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.